it's not about basically you think you have the best idea. Maybe the best idea is next to you. So I would say if you have 10 friends, take those 10 friends and say, okay, each one of them might have some negative aspect, but what are the most two positive, three positive things I can take from each friends and I can incorporate it into my lifestyle. Hi friends, it's Steve and welcome to episode 67 of the Assyrian Podcast. In a world of rapidly changing technological shifts and data traveling from one place to another, it's incredibly important to have a way of communicating that's efficient, secure, and private. Today's guest, Francis Dinha, is the founder and CEO of OpenVPN. OpenVPN is a tool that creates a virtual tunnel from one place to another for the seamless and safe flow of data. This tool is being used across the world by companies like Google, Disney, Microsoft, and so many more. Francis is on the Forbes Technology Council, he's started multiple businesses, and he's a proud Assyrian. How cool is that? I was able to nerd out with Francis as we talked about topics like packet switching, VoIP, and Steve Jobs. Francis doesn't just talk and think about new ideas, he actually gives them life and he takes action. Being in his presence reminded me that anything is possible if you're willing to put in the work and let the fire within you lead. I think you're going to catch a feel for that in this interview as well. Francis is a technology giant and we're going to roll the interview. But first, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or... 847-982-9516. Now, here is Francis Dinha. Thank you so much for being on the Assyrian Podcast. And I know that when I first connected with you at your daughter's concert, I thought we have to get him on the Assyrian Podcast. So here we are now, almost a year later. I want to begin with, where were you born and raised? Well, thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm happy to be on your podcast. It's uh, very interesting. Well, I was born in a village in northern Iraq, and maybe you've never heard of this village. It's called Belejane. Belejane, it's an Assyrian village, a very small town, very close to Ahmadiyya, very way, way north at the almost at the basically boundary between Turkey and Iraq. Belejani is actually an Assyrian name. Belejani, if you translate it to real Assyrian, it's mean between the two gardens. So that's where I was born. I was born in a, a village called Belejani. That actually my dad and my uncles, they own almost, I would say 70% of the village. So your parents were entrepreneurs. Your family had already was purchasing the land in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I guess you didn't have a choice. I mean, the, the, you, you had to, yeah, my dad, 
basically he lost his parents when he was nine years old. How did he lose them? They were uh, part of the Syrian genocide. Okay. So he was nine years old and he didn't know what to do. And he was raised by his aunt. And, um, and so he had to survive. And that's what he did. He worked, survived, since he was nine years old. And then he saved money and saved until he bought the land, him and his brother. Do you still own that land? We still own that land. It's in northern Iraq. And actually, I visited northern Iraq in 2003. Okay. And I went to the village. And still, there were some, actually, part of my house is still there where I was born. But I left that village when I was five years old. And where did you go? To Baghdad, because of the war. Mm -hmm. So what happened in 1960-61, when the Kurdish, they want to have their own independence. They were fighting against the government. So we were bombed, basically. So we had to escape the village. My cousins, two cousins, were killed right there in, in the village. I remember. I was only five years old. I remember the war. How were they killed? Bombing. Basically, the airplanes came and just bombed the village. I mean, there was no, nobody had weapon there, just bombed the village. Why, is, why did they bomb those villages? Because actually, the, our village were, was down there, Amadia. Amadia, there was a lot of soldiers there, Kurdish soldiers. So when, when the Iraqi army was coming over there, they were basically bombing everything, you know. Oh, I see. And... Case we got we out. got somehow and the and and they bombed and all I heard was just the earth was shaking. This is all my rem I remember, and we had to run away. And then we were under the tree, and my mother I say, "Are we dead or are we still alive?" She said, "No, no, we still alive." Okay, so we had to actually escape, and hide in caves. And I remember the cave that my dad used to have a rifle. And then I remember I fell, and all. I saw it with this helicopter coming and he was so worried about it, that the helicopter was going to shoot and probably kill me. So he had to really save me and drag me into the cave. So that's how we survived. But I mean, the, the village was a very nice village. I mean, we, my dad, he was a farmer. I mean, we had everything, but then we had to start all from scratch. We had to escape northern Iraq and go to Baghdad. And we didn't even speak Arabic language. You only spoke Assyrian? We only spoke Assyrian, but we spoke Kurdish too. Because, you know, uh, at the time it was a Kurdish place. Like the school, they taught Kurdish and Assyrian. And we had villages such as Belajane, Bebade, Hamzie, Amadia. They were all Assyrian villages very close to Duhok. You know, Duhok in Assyrian, it's called Nahadra. That's, that's the place. It's only about actually an hour drive from Nahadra to Belajani. Beautiful. I couldn't imagine. When I went there and I saw my village, I said, my God, this is such a beautiful town. I mean, the, the mountain, the, the snow around it, it's, it was just such a beautiful town. You ever, you ever plan to retire there maybe? <laughs> Not really. My brother, by the way, he built a house there. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. He's, he lives in Sweden. So he goes back and forth, right? Uh, I don't know about retirement, but, but definitely, I mean, I'm, I might go there and visit my cousins. Yeah. Actually, I still have a cousin that, uh, a couple of cousins, they live in Duhok. 
and they do have house in Bilijan as well. So they do commute back and forth there. And Bilijan, by the way, it's they call it also the town Matit uh, Sahre, because if you remember the Assyrian Democratic Movement, the uh, Yosef Yuhanna, mm -hmm. their graves are in Bilijan. That's where they were born. They are my cousins. So <laughs> I have also the history of political things when it comes to Assyrian and the Assyrian yeah. Democratic and, Movement. And we can talk about some of that. Yeah. But right now I'm really wondering, you're five or six years old and you go to Baghdad, then mm -hmm. what happens? Well, in Baghdad, then we were lost pretty much because you can imagine my parents with seven kids, right? Seven? Seven children. Oh, wow. Seven siblings. And I was the youngest. Oh my gosh, you're the baby. I was the baby. I was the baby. And, and then we had, basically we have some family and, and, and luckily my sister was already there. She was married in Baghdad. So we had to live in one room, all of us sleeping in one room. So my dad has to work basically. And then my sister, that's how we basically survived. And your Pretty dad much. did agricultural farming. He stuff. did. He did, and not in Baghdad. In Baghdad, he started learning about carp being a carpenter and yeah. fixing stuff, and and uh, did and he you know truck driving. And and he didn't drive. He just basically, <laughs> you know, at the time, you know, we didn't have a car. I mean, in, in northern Iraq, as you know, Belajani, we didn't have even electricity. Mm -hmm. We were living in the land. Pretty much everything was very basic. You know, simple life, right? You can imagine you're going from a very simple life, you go to a city as Baghdad, right? Now you have electricity. Then now you land in a country, in a, in a, in a city, you can't even speak the language. And then you think you're a foreigner there because you can't speak the language. And then on top of that, the religion is different because now you, you were used to Assyrian, you were used to church, and now you're suddenly in a, in a place completely strange. Right. So, so basically I had to, you know, also go to school. So they had to put me through the school and I, I couldn't speak the language. So the kids used to make fun of me, obviously. Who's this guy? Where's, what planet mm -hmm. is he coming from? He doesn't speak Arabic. <laughs> but I was a very determined child. And at the end of the year, I was the first in the class. I had to learn the language, the Arabic language, and you know, I was I was pretty much a very, very smart kid. So smarter than now. Smarter than what? <laughs> than now. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. getting older. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about what you have going on now, but I really want to focus in on what. How did you guys end up moving from Iraq to United States? Well, first of all, in Baghdad. Before we moved to the U.S., I moved to Sweden. Okay. You because on your own or did you... I, on my own first. And then I brought the whole family to and Sweden. And how old were you? I was in my 20s, 21. Okay. So 21 and Francis is, is really focusing in on freedom for himself and for his Freedom family. for myself. I didn't like the political system, the Ba'athist regime, the Saddam, all these things, what was going on. You're like, we're done. We stay here. I, I was involved a little bit. I was involved in uh, political movements of Assyrian. I was involved with Sahra Yusuf, with, uh, you know, Yunadam Kanna, 
who's head of the Syrian. We were all, we had these political parties, right? But I didn't see any future. I didn't see really any future in Iraq because, because of the rhetoric, because of all these dictatorship and, and it was very scary. So I had to make a decisions. And at the same time, I was very much into more, how would I say it, outgoing thinker. I was thinking about more music. I used to play guitar. I used to have a band in Baghdad playing in weddings. What was the name of your band? It was Nineveh. <laughs> the name of my band was Nineveh. Okay. So we used to play in, in, in a club in Dora, the Assyrian place. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, so, and I used to love music, ABBA music. Uh, you know, Alton Jones and Beatles and these are the type of songs I used to love, right? So I always was inspired by the Western world, the freedom. You know, I, I had that hunger, so I, I decided... How did you get that music? Was it readily available in Iraq or was it underground? Like even listening to that, that music? It wasn't exactly, I wouldn't say it was underground, uh, yeah. Yeah, really, I mean, it was pretty common for a lot of bands to pretty much sing in all these songs and music and all that. But then, You'd hear it on the radio. And hear it on the radio. There was some special, like, uh, The Voice of America that was uh, at the time. Oh. They shut it down after some time. Because those thoughts coming yeah, in from exactly, the exactly, exactly. From the West, they, they really didn't promote them. But there's still some of this music influence in Iraq. And even among some of the friends that I had, the Arab friends as well, they were involved in that. I mean, we, we actually played in, in even weddings, pretty large weddings in places where the dominant people were Arabs and, you know, very you know, enjoyed the music and, and all that stuff, right? So, so yeah, I mean, uh, Iraq at the time was a little bit modernized, but unfortunately when Ba'athist regime took over, right? Uh, there was there was a shift a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and a movement toward uh, a different different direction. You know, uh, and so many people are leaving, and you go to Sweden. I go to Sweden because I had a friend. We used to correspond through letters at the time. There was no internet, so I used to send him a letter. He said, so I decided to say, okay, I'm gonna fly to Sweden. So I flew to Denmark. I got a visa to Sweden. End up in Sweden, and applied for asylum in Sweden political asylum. Yeah. And did you get it? Yes, I got it. And then after a year, less than a year, I got the whole family, my brother, my sisters, everybody there. One of my sisters, she, she was married and she has seven kids. And then the immigration was saying, what the hell is going on? I mean, you, you get such a big family coming to Sweden. But we had a pretty good, uh, good, and at the time, actually, Sweden for them, Assyrian were pretty much unknown entity in Iraq specifically. There were Assyrian from Turkey, but from Iraq, it was very unknown for them. You know, but so I had, I, had, I had to educate kind of the immigration about, okay, the story of the Assyrian, how, how do they live, and how we couldn't even practice our rights in Iraq. We couldn't even speak our language in school. We're not allowed, by the way, if there's a teacher in Assyrian, you couldn't speak in Assyrian. So it was not allowed at all. So, so, so that's a major transition then now. It was Sweden. a major transition going from Baghdad, from Northern Iraq to Baghdad, then to Sweden, right? Yeah. Then in Sweden, I was very determined, gee, I need to finish my education. So now I have to learn Swedish. Yes. 
completely different language. So you're like 21, 22, different language, and you're enrolling in college. And enrolling in college, I had eight months. I had to go intensive study of Swedish language. I had to pass that exam that they have special for language, and I did. Mm -hmm. And then I got submitted to the college. So I finished my computer engineering, electrical engineering, got my master in there. I was doing my PhD, and I was also teaching at the university. I was a research assistant there what at university? the university. Huh? What university? The university is called Linköping University. That was South Stockholm, South. Uh -huh. It's it's uh, it's a town where all my actually my brothers and sisters they live there. That's where I grew up. <laughs> so you're powering through. You're getting the education. Tell me again what you majored in. And uh, I major in actually doubly electrical engineering and master in computer engineering. Okay, computer engineering. Yes. And what was even happening with computers in those days? Actually, believe it or not, not much. However, <laughs> but I tell you the history from Baghdad because in Baghdad I went to college, and the college I was submitted to was also electrical engineering with something called control system, control theory. So at the time. We were studying in Baghdad, not computer engineering at this level, but we were, we were studying computer at the very lower level, like the dashboards of AND gates and OR gates and NAND gates, we used to build logic. Mm -hmm. So when I went, I was very kind of fascinated about the Texas in instrument, the first calculator. I want to break it apart and I want to know what's in it. That's how I was curious about it. Yeah. So I went to Sweden. And Sweden, you're right. I mean, even at the time, computer engineering, you know, I had to build my own computers from scratch. Mm -hmm. Why wrap that? Can you imagine why wrapping computers and putting like a Motorola processor with all that stuff? And then I have to say, okay, now I have to write the operating system because there was no such thing as an operating system. So I had to write the code in assembly. A very lower language and mm -hmm. even microprogramming to really kind of construct this. Then I was in in a way a musician too. So I said, well, how about if I combine these two? Okay. So I started building a drum synthesizer and a synthesizer. So then I connect my computer with the synthesizer and so I start programming a writing program from scratch, you know, in in basics and 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 basically see and trying to basically control these instruments. And even at the time, MIDI didn't even exist. The MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. You can see it in all these instruments, how you can connect. You know, mm -hmm. right? So I was very fascinated about that, about the music and all that. And believe, believe it or not, even in school, one of my theses when I was doing my master was about, was about music. It's how a computer can control the music. And I built a program around that as well. Who got you your first guitar? My dad. We couldn't afford it. In Baghdad, he built it for me. He built it from scratch because he was a carpenter. Wow. <laughs> I didn't get I regret he, that. He I wish I had that guitar. Himself. He just figured it out himself and he built a guitar. Well, I told him exactly how it is. He said, okay, now we have to get the tree. We have to get the fingerboard. Mm -hmm. So he started, you know, making it. So how are we going to make the body? Okay, let's go. You know, you know, in Arabic, that manchal, what they call it, where they, you know, he took that wood and he made the body of the uh -huh. guitar. So he basically soaked it in the water and got it out. And then we had to go to a place to get the strings. And he said, okay, now we have fingerboard. Now I have to have the, the fingerboard. How do we, how do we get that? So we, we, 
we start basically innovating and me, me and dad brainstorming about how we're gonna fix this. And eventually we, we got the guitar. It didn't sound very, very good, but at least it was okay. I could play. <laughs> Where did your dad come from? Like how, how is he so open-minded and helping his kid? And My dad, he was a farmer, but he was a very humble man and he was a very kind of wise, although he was not educated. But he came, as you know, I mean, he lost his parents when he oh, was yeah, yeah. nine years old. So he had to think outside the box to survive. The matter of fact, he told me when he was 11 years old, he stood at the river one time and he said, maybe I shouldn't live. He wanted to commit a suicide because he couldn't relate. Well, I mean, you, you can think about 11 years old. I mean, how can he survive, right? I mean, he was then, obviously, he met my mom when he was in his, you know, in his uh, 20s, you know, uh, in, the, in the village he lived. And then, in 1933, I was not born. Then we had the genocide of Christians mm -hmm. in Assyria, in northern Iraq. And then, so they had to escape to Syria. For seven years, my dad and the family stayed in Syria. And then he had to come back. Well, my dad, he was born 1902, but he witnessed two genocides. He witnessed the genocide of the Assyrian, the first one in 1912, 15. And my dad used to tell him he was a kid, but he used to have a very long hair. So in Assyrian, they used to have a very long hair. And at the time they had to cut his hair because the army was instructed, if you see any Assyrian with long hair, just chop their head. Why? Because they, I guess that was, they don't like Assyrian. <laughs> they want oh. the genocide of the Assyrian. No, I guess what I was wondering is, that, was there something specific about long hair? I have no idea. It That's was only that an Assyrian the, the Assyrian And the Assyrian that they used to have a long hair. Oh, and he did fought with Agapotros as well, my dad, in the army of Agapotros. Wow. Yes. He lived over a hundred years. God bless him. So you must have heard all these stories then. Oh, yeah. So when, a lot when of you say stories. that name, Agapotros, it's, it's someone that knew your dad very well, very closely. That was, he was in the army and he was very young at the time. And Agapotros, he was more of a uniter. I mean, he, he really united Assyrian. And my family particularly, my mother, she's a Catholic. But my dad, he's more of an Assyrian church, Orthodox, or Assyrian Madenha we call it, the uh -huh. Church of Assyria. And we were kind of born in a family, like half-half. It's like my sister, she was a Catholic. The other sister, she used to go to different churches. So we used to go to both churches. So we didn't see a difference. But then when we, when we heard all these Assyrian, they're fighting, oh, we are Assyrian, we're Chaldeanian, we're this, we this. We, we couldn't kind of relate to that, right? Right. Because you're, we believe we were all Assyrian. You're, and you were Christian in a non-Christian world. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's very tough. It was very tough. So, but then Sweden was completely different. Very liberal. Completely different. My family loved it. My dad, my mother. Well, finally they can go to church. There are a lot of churches. They can relate. But then the language is different. The culture is different. You know? Right? Well, it sounds like this diverse background and the hardships that your parents experienced, it, it really molded you into uh, someone who's resilient, someone who's pushing. It's not like you showed up in Sweden and said, oh, perfect, I can 
you know, live off the government now and relax. No, was... no. I washed dishes then. Mm -hmm. And I was very determined. I remember that I used to work in a restaurant in a hospital. And then the woman, she asked me, because I was a matron, what are you going to do, Francis? And I said, well, I'm going to study, I'm, I'm going to get my degree, I'm going to university. And she said, wow, so you're going to be an engineer? Yes, and yeah. She said, oh, Wendy, you're not going to talk to us. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just studying now. She said, yeah, I wish you the best. I wish you the best. You know, so I was very determined. I mean, you know, I had to survive, right? You know, work, wash dishes, whatever it took to get my degree. Right. So you complete your degree, you're still loving and playing music. How do you end up in the United States? Oh, uh, I end up in the United States because when I graduated, and actually when I was doing my PhD, I met this person, uh, he's from India, my friend, and we were doing research together and publishing things, papers. We published papers, he was from India, his name is Ramamurthy. <laughs> and Ramo, I used to call him Ramo, he was a great great mind, very smart guy, and uh, we published an article about uh, actually speech recognition and speech synthesis. Back in the and, 70s? And back in the 80s. 80s. That was in the 80s. And we actually published it, and there was a presentation at Bangalore University in India. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he came here to Dallas, you know, there was a lot of entrepreneurs from India at the time. And he called me and said, Francis, hey, there are a lot of opportunities in the, in the U.S. You got to check here. We've got something here. I said, what? He said, well, we've got a company here. They really want to interview you. So that's that's what happened. You know, they, they just paid my tickets and say, and they liked me very much and offered me a, a position in the company in, in Dallas. So how long were you And in then Dallas? they got my, my, my H-1B visa. I mean, at the time, H-1B visa, I got it even before I landed in this country, you know? Because of all your technology, you are now getting all these connections and you've got a job in Dallas. I got a job in Dallas and I was making $36,000 a year. <laughs> that, was not, that was a lot of money then. <laughs> that was a Especially for Dallas. That for was Dallas, a lot of money. Yeah, there. I mean, my rent was $400 a month. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I was married at the time. I had only one child, Nineveh. Nainawa. And where was Nineveh. she born? She was born in Sweden. Oh, okay. She was born in Sweden, so we came to Dallas, and then we had our second ch child, Shauna, there in, in Dallas. And she so was born in Dallas She also. was born in But we used to live in Plano. Yeah. You know, you know where Plano, it's yes. a pretty nice area, right? But then what what got me out of Dallas was the Silicon Valley, obviously, the Bay Area, everything, yeah. the technology. I but, used to work there. But wasn't HP headquartered in Dallas? Or Ross Perot did a bunch of stuff. Ross Perot there. was there. There was the Northern Telecom was there. Uh, there was Ericsson there. It was DSC Communications, which I worked for DSC Communications there. Uh, that was bought by Architel. And then I worked for Ericsson as well in Dallas. Yes. So I went back to Ericsson. And then again, I went back to Sweden. <laughs> but then, you know, we spent about a couple of years in Sweden again. Uh, I said, this is not for me. I need to go back to U.S. I like really capitalism. I wasn't, I mean, socialism, you know, I mean, I lived, I lived in a country that was dictatorship, moved to a country that's socialist, and then came to more of a, you know, capitalist You're country. more of a capitalist kind of guy. You fit well, it depends. It depends how you look at it. Yeah, I mean, I'm more, I'm, a, I'm more when it comes to, I'm physically conservative, definitely. I believe in, 
and really low taxes when it comes to corporations. And But at the same time, I feel and I believe that we have to be socially responsible as well. So I don't know if I fit anywhere. I fit in the middle. <laughs> exactly. Your, your country maybe isn't, hasn't come together just yet. <laughs> so you went from Dallas back to Sweden. You're in Sweden. You want to come back to the United States. I still have, I have my green card. You still time. had your green card. Yeah, I, I got my green card. I came here and then in uh, 96, we, when I came back, I say, okay, let's go just to the Bay Area. That's it. You know, did you know anybody but, in the Bay Area? Uh, I didn't. I knew a Syrian, my friends, friends sure. here, yeah, a Syrian. And then I was like, where do I go? Uh, San Jose, uh, Malpitas, uh, Morgan Hill. And then I met this guy and said, well, Modesto, but I don't want to be in Modesto on tour. Like, I understand all the Syrian out there, but I want to be close to high tech. And he told me, you know what? Pleasanter. So that's, <laughs> I settled And for Pleasanton. people who don't know, because there's people, where explain to people what's the value of Pleasanton in the Bay Well, Area. Pleasanton is very interesting because Pleasanton, it's almost East San Francisco, North San Jose, but also, uh, I would say, is it uh, it's about West, an hour from West Modesto. Modesto. Yeah. So it's the best of everything, right? And it's warm, it's hot, it's nice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can get to San Francisco in less than an hour and you can get to Modesto in less than an hour, San Jose. And it's kind of a bedroom community. It's also for a lot of high-tech people. Yep, and Livermore is right there. So there's Livermore is right there, Livermore exactly. Livermore Labs. Livermore, you've got Danville, you've got Dublin, you've got all these places. So what year do you move to Pleasanton? It was 97, 96, 97. Okay. So 96, 97, you're there, you raise your daughters there. Mm -hmm. Where are you working? Oh, there, when I came here, that's it. I started my first venture. What was your first venture? My first venture was called Newcom Technologies. Newcom Technologies, C-O-M, right? Yes. Okay. So I say Newcom. And the history behind that, I was working for Ericsson. When I was working for Ericsson, I was part of a team called Strategy, network concept. So I was promoting the idea in Stockholm that, yeah, I was, I was actually tasked with evaluating the new technology. They invested over $500 million in this new technology. You say network com? Newcom. Newcom. Okay, new but this is before that, when I was at Ericsson in Sweden, I actually evaluated that technology for years they developed. And I said, this is a great technology. What did but, the technology do? Well, the technology, you know, as you know, Ericsson is, very much into the mobile, but they are very much into circuit switching. And I say, okay, the market is not moving towards circuit switching. Uh, there is a technology called ATM, a synchronous transfer mode. Wait, wait, is, wait, slow down, I know, slow down. I know. What does um, so circuit, circuit switching? What circuit switching, when you make a phone call, yes. right? It establishes a circuit between you and the other person. Okay. So there are circuit switches. Mm -hmm. These switches, they do that, all that stuff, right? But it's a technology that established kind of that circuit so to bring your voice all the way from end to end, right? Yeah. But then the packet technology, the internet was developing yeah. at the time. So just That was in early 90s. Yeah. So I met with the CEO of Ericsson, Anders Eagle. What's Eagle, the name? Eagle. Eagle is, is the bird, right? Uh-huh. The, the, so, and his name. <clears throat> Great guy. And I met with their management. I said, that is not the direction you guys need to go. You need to go toward internet. This is, Cisco is going to eat your lunch. 
because we need to move voice over IP and over internet. And a lot of people there hated me for that, right? <laughs> so that's really what kind of brought the idea of packet switching and, and we need to start looking at a different technology and different ways of doing things. So you need to reshape, close this project. They eventually closed the whole project, by the way. That was a waste of money. And, and so I decided to say, okay, I'm quitting Ericsson really, because you know, big companies normally they don't move very fast. And when I started Newcom Technology, that was my first customer was Ericsson. Okay. So the first contract I got from them was about a half million dollars. So I've, I got my first $500,000 of check after even a month starting my first business so that was good that was <laughs> that's the way to do it that's the way to do it so that's when i started my first business you know in in and when i moved here to and you uh, were Pleasanton. you were consulting about how was voip i was i was doing a packet routing switch at the time okay which basically was a generic technology to switch everything not just the voice but the idea is to build to build a platform that we can switch anything so you can overlay uh, you know the voice the data everything on top of it but at the same time the agreement the way I did it with Ericsson that I would own the intellectual property they only get a commercial so indirectly they funded that for me mm -hmm. so that was you know the deal I striked with them yeah so you're so that's when I made a lot of money through that venture you know you're creating the ability to move data rapidly at that time and it's various types of data. It's not just, it's audio, it's video possibly, yes. it's yes. text, it's pictures. Yes. And you're creating the system that can make that mm -hmm. happen fast. Yes, yes. How much of that is connected to taking the musical instruments back in Sweden and hooking them up into computers and synthesizers? Well, it's, 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 it's basically Your brain works it's, this way, it's the right? same thing, right? Okay. So you're thinking about different direction, right? Because music is real time. When you're pressing on a keyboard or a guitar, you have to hear it immediately. It's a real time, right? So voice, you can't, and data is different. When you're browsing something, you can wait for something coming up and coming up, right? But in the voice, it has to be real time. So it was very important. The quality of service has to be there. I do have a pattern, by the way, that's called synchronous pack switching. So if you Google that on my name, you're going to see that pattern. Synchronous packet switching? Yes. So I said, we have to synchronize the packets. And that's part of the pattern was, the idea is, so that's when I started my second venture called Packet Stream. So I meaning we have to stream the packets in order to do, to do this, right? So quality of service is a big deal in the, on the internet. Sometimes you see that these days, yeah, right? Yeah, These days. Well, and still, we haven't solved that problem, by right. the way. I, we haven't solved that problem, so. Where I've seen that come up is in ordering phone systems. Mm -hmm. QoS, it's always yes, something that always people talk about. But the QoS, the way it's being solved these days, it's mostly with queuing. So you queue, you put different in different level of queues, and you give them different priorities. Mm -hmm. So you say, I'm going to give higher priority, but you're hoping. But priority is one aspect. The other aspect is the delivery time. How long you cannot afford to have that pack to be delivered very much delayed because if you have that delay, our ears will experience kind of echo latency and latency yeah. and then you're gonna have that you know you have then you have to do a lot of these echo cancellations and all sort of things you have in the in the in the packets right so still even at today's I mean you see even the mobile phone right you still have 
to some certain, when you make a phone call here, it's it's a circuit switching still. Is it really? It's still, yeah. It's not, it hasn't come Now, if you do a Skype call, right. yeah. it's over the internet. It's yeah. over packets. Yeah. So, but sometimes you see the quality might get degraded, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Or if you use WhatsApp, you see sometimes, uh-oh, the quality of the, of the signal is not good and you lose the voice, right? Then you have to go to a, a different place and yeah. make sure your packets get on time. So it's, it's a different technology. And you launched one business. It was highly successful. Then you went into your second business. The Tell second didn't do well. Okay, what was it again? The packet stream. And why didn't it do well? Because I got, well, I mean, it didn't do well because it is, it was not because of the technology and the product. It just, we got actually caught, we, we got caught in the middle of a dot-com. The dot-com crash. It really, really affected us. So the VCs that we were raising money, the second round of financing, we got caught into that and they decommitted. They said, we're not going to. And at the time we were just raising money. I mean, we were not like profitable, you know, because uh, it was easy. It was very easy. I was all about technology and building and getting the momentum. So in a way, I learned more from from the failure than actual the success. And that's when I started my third venture, which is OpenVPN. Right. Uh, completely different, you know. So you you go from one success and you be you are very complacent about it. Say, oh, this is easy, right? I can do it again. <laughs> and then you say, oops, okay. Well, I haven't experienced this. It's just like, you know, and then you go to, to, to the other venture and, and, and you learn way more from your mistakes than success, you know. You know, uh, people don't talk about failure as much as they talk about their successes, but yeah, it is, it is our failures that really help us to to make better choices and to be wiser in other ventures that come our way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you learn more from that because otherwise, I mean, what would you learn from the success? I mean, if the success is just very easy way and you get lucky sometimes, it could be timing sometimes, yeah. you know, and, and you get very successful. So, so you didn't lose everything <coughs> though? No, not really, no. Because you I lost been... other, I lost other people's money. Yeah. <laughs> some of mine too yeah but I was very careful and other very people cautious. who were okay with taking the yeah, yeah 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 these were venture capitals and right. people actually the matter of fact with this OpenVPN when I started I, I still have some of the angel investor who lost their money there they came in and, and invested in OpenVPN as well so OpenVPN for people who are not techie what's OpenVPN <clears throat> Okay, so what is OpenVPN? Open is open. VPN stands for Virtual Private Networks. So open stands for open source. What, what does it mean is it's transparent technology. What is a transparent technology compared to a closed technology? Transparent technology, that means you really make your source code available to the market, to mm -hmm. the industry. So the experts and the industry can review, can critique it, can see if there are any security problem with it. So all these things, it, it comes to the transparent technology. So that's when we decided that the model is going for us, we're going to go with the open source. And on top of the open source, we can build our commercial version in terms of improving it, building a better management, a better UI, better user experience and so on, right? To deliver it to, to businesses and so on, right? So VPN, Think of it this way. It's, it's really 
Think of internet today. Internet is not very secure, but it's very ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I mean, you sit here, you have internet access. You know, it's a huge infrastructure anywhere in the world. But the idea of VPN businesses, you know, if you have a business that it is distributed across the globe, or if you have remote workers are working, say, in Starbucks from home, but they have internet. So how do you connect them to your private network and have them access to private resources, private data, because you don't want to expose that information to the public internet. It's not like going to Google or going to Facebook. You don't want to do that because you have mission critical application. You have data that you want to secure and you want to encrypt. So VPN, what it does is you install the VPN app in your, whether it's you have a, you know, an iPhone or and whatever smartphone you have, or you have your PC, your Mac, you install that app. It creates a tunnel and it encrypts everything. And it tunnels all the traffic to a server that's sitting in your private network or private cloud that eventually bring that, but everything is encrypted. So it uses the internet as a transport from point A to point B to secure that data. So nobody, there is no man in the middle can look at your information, can attack that information. Even if they see it, it's encrypted. It's They're all encrypted. It's all yeah. kind of just basically scrambled pretty much. Mm -hmm. They can't see anything. You know. And what gave you the idea to do OpenVPN? Well, I met, when I met James, James Yonan, he's a Syrian, he's our Syrian, he's that, I mean, the co-founder of OpenVPN. He's the, the guy who wrote the open source. When I met him, he didn't know what to do with it. He was doing it as a hobby and, you know, he's got some, and I had the idea of, okay, I believe the internet is insecure. So, and there were some SSL VPN, some VPN, but the VPN, they were very limited limited in terms of boxes. You have to buy a physical box and install it. And, and I said, what about if we do this more in a much more scalable way, more software? And, and then when I met James, I said, this, this is what I want to do. This is, so we, we, we got together and we say, okay, why don't we merge our idea? So that's when really the whole business was born. And how did born. you know James? James, I found him actually on pretty much on the web and the internet. And I hired him as a consultant initially because I started my business and I say, well, James, I want to build this stuff. And I see you're doing something very similar. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll be definitely. So I hired him as a consultant working with me. And then we met, he flew over here. I flew over to Boulder. He lives, still lives in Boulder and he loves to work from home. And, <clears throat> you know, so he had this mind of, he's a very much into, He's brilliant and brilliant in terms of coding. And I, I immediately recognized Jim's capabilities and really uh, intellectual capacity and, and what he can do. And he's very much into Linux and operating systems. So I understood that. I, I saw the value. I said, this is what I want to do. And then he looked at me, yeah, I don't think that's possible. I said, yes, it's possible. We can do this. So that's when we, we start brainstorming about a lot of things about how we're going to do this, how we're going to achieve this. So then, uh, you know, I actually, uh, you know, met with my, some of the investors raised, 
you know, close a little bit over a million dollars in, in, in the first round of financing. And we never raised money after that. It was angel, you know, investors. And, and it's really taken off. It's, it's taking off. We're very profitable. It's growing. You know, it's, uh, I mean, OpenVPN has been deployed by, by Google for their uh, IT. It's uh, Salesforce uses OpenVPN as well, I, our commercial product. We have more than 50 million downloads. We get about a million downloads a month. It's, it's, just, it's just growing, you know. We're experiencing growth of north of 70% revenue growth rate every year. So, and that's your third venture. This is my third venture, and um, maybe it's my last one. <laughs> but your first one and your second one was enough failure and enough success to really get you to hone in for this third one. Yes, yes, yes. That, yeah, really, I learned a lot of things that I did this differently. And one of the things I decided that not to get really venture capitalists involved in this. Now, that doesn't mean this is right for everybody, but this was my model, basically. I want to basically organically grow this, you know, rather than going and raising money from venture capitalists. And, and you and, were able to do that. And I was able to do that. I mean, there, there's two models. I mean, either you raise money and basically it's like the unicorn and you, you have to be sure. You have to have a good business plan. You have to have good executions plan and you take the money, you run with it, but you have to pre be very sure you're going to meet your milestones. If you don't, you're going to crash and burn pretty much. The organic growth is different. It takes time, but you're going to do a lot of mistakes. It's like climbing the mountains. There's two ways to reach the top. Either you take an elevator or you climb it. Mm -hmm. So climbing it and, 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 and doing it organically, it's very hard. But once you reach the top, the strength you gain, it's amazing then you, you're going to be able to compete very, very effectively. And right now, you're just loving life. You're loving doing OpenVPN. And I like it. And I now you're, it. you're a new grandpa, right? I am. I, am. <laughs> <laughs> I think you still have a lot of time in you to do pretty awesome stuff. I think so. I think uh, we will be in a couple of years, um, two to three years, we will be very well positioned for an IPO. Now the question whether we're going to do an IPO or we're going to exit, uh, we had number of offers last year and this year, venture capitalists, private equity companies want to acquire us, but still, you know, it's not, it's not all about money because if you're focused in money, it's, it's all about money, then forget it. If you don't have the passion for what you're doing, then don't do it. Because if your ultimate goal is money, there are other ways of making money, you know? Because money, it just, it's going to come. It's, it's not something you have to, you know, strive after. I mean, if, if your goal is to make money because you want to buy a new car, you want to buy a bigger house, you're going to do this. I mean, a lot of people tell me, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go and get your private jet or do this? I said, well, but this, these are not the things that excite me, right? The things that excite me is really to build a venture, to build something that you can really make a difference in this and especially in the security business mm -hmm. that we are in, right? Well, uh, I'm inspired. I think when I think about your life and just what we've learned during this time is movement. There's just been a lot of movement and you uh, are fascinated by the movement of data and following the trends and being a pioneer in that world. 
is it safe to call you a pioneer in that world? I don't know. I don't know what you can call me. I'm just me, right? But I, I get excited. I always get ahead of myself. I get always new ideas. Sometimes it's good and bad. Because I always go to my engineering and I say, hey, what about do, do? We need to do this because I see a lot of things what's going on in the marketplace, right? I see things maybe only few peop people see. I mean, that's the idea of vision, right? You put together all these puzzles and you say, oh my God, there are some new opportunities that are coming. And then you don't have the resources to execute all that because you're, you're already, you've got all these resources that are working on, on, on you know, building a venture. So I think I believe in, in, in kind of uh, walk, run, and then fly. You know, it's like the acceleration. It's like the airplane when it takes off, right? You just get the momentum and then you take off. So it takes, it takes a lot of work, right, to get there, you know. So I'm, I'm getting used to it, although I want to do a lot of things, you know, I want to get involved in a lot of things. But on the other hand, I don't have all the capital, right? Maybe after this venture, right? You'll be able when to I exam, do... I would do... I would be able to do a lot of things that I want to venture into. It might not be just technology, it might be in the biotech. I'm very fascinated by biotech too. So there's yeah. a lot of things what's right now happening in biotech. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, tell me about your relationship with the Syrians. What's that been like over the last 20 years? My relationship with the Syrian, I mean, I've been, I mean, it's, it's good, but I've been, I mean, I haven't been very close to a lot of activities. I mean, I would, would have liked to be closer to more maybe political activities, uh, some of the things. I was very engaged years back when I was in Sweden. But then you just became disillusioned with all of it and said no more? Well, or I time mean, or it's, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things. It's a combination of, I get very busy with, with my venture, but also there's a combination of a lot of Assyrian. Just, just, it just basically, it's, there's just too many different political views and it just, it's very hard to bring them together. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's just too many issues we have. And I think sometimes the Syrian, we're not very realistic about our goals and what we want to achieve. I understand we all have dream to have our own country and land and all that, but we have to be real about, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Iraq, right? We have to be realist and, and just having a dream. It, it's good to have a dream, right? But at the same time, you have to have a plan. And for me as an entrepreneur, and as a, as, a, as a business person, I believe in you have a vision, but at the same time, you have to set a plan. When you set a plan, you also have to measure what is, what is the objectives you're trying to reach. And if you don't reach them, you have to adjust. So I'm very practical. Yep. And that just doesn't fit with the, a lot of Assyrian when I, and especially in the political arena, you know. It's just like, you there's know, a lot there's, of there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of talk, but no action, you know? So maybe you're the guy to say, you know what? My <laughs> venture is doing great. I'm taking the bull by the horns and no one's going to get in my way. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. I think there are a lot of Assyrian who are way more qualified than me. I, ha I do have a lot of respect for a lot of Assyrian who are really venturing into politics and they're very much doer 
but the, 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 the irony is a lot of these doers, somehow they get alienated. And it's sad mm -hmm. because here's my philosophy. When you do work, you do make mistakes. But if you don't do anything, you don't expose to any mistakes. So the Assyrians who are silent and quiet and not doing anything, they can criticize the people who are working hard, who are on the fields. Of course, they're going to do mistakes. So I've seen it and, and I've seen it with my friends. I've seen it with a lot of my colleagues and, and people in, in the Assyrian democratic movement and other parties, you know, and it's sad. You know. It's too much criti criticism. There's too much criticism. I agree. And I think that's what I love about being and doing the Assyrian podcast is we're really interested in inspiring and encouraging Assyrians all around the world. And what I love about your story, Francis, is uh, you are someone who you took advantage of all the opportunities that life gave you. You know, you didn't say, oh, man, poor me. I'm from a small village in Iraq. And look, I had to move to Baghdad and I'm, I'm the youngest of seven and my dad, his parents, what they went through. You show up in Texas and you start working, you go back to Sweden, you come back to Bay Area and you're trying to do, it, do what's right. Absolutely. I mean, I was in Baghdad when I was 11 years old, going in the street and the government is hanging people and killing people in the middle of the street. And some people, when they interview me here in other podcasts, right, I was telling them, they're asking me, they say, how come you don't have post-traumatic disorder? I said, you know, I, I'm, what, what is it? I said, you know what? For me, that was all noise. For me, I understand that's not the life I want to be. I understand. I felt very bad. But I was like, there's got to be a better life for me. I have to look forward. I have to be positive. There are more positive things in this life. So, Francis, if, if we create a time machine or a fountain of youth happens, and now you're living for another 100 years, no problem. Mm -hmm. You know for a fact Francis lives. I think I might live another 100 years. Excellent. All right. So then you already, you already know this. What do you do with your energy and time? I always have energy, and I think there's always things to do because life is endless. For me, there's just so much to learn and so much to contribute to the society and so much to, to just build, right? I mean, I get fascinated about, I mean, more I do, more I want to do, more things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's part of how my brain is wired. And as an entrepreneur, that's how you, you, you should be, right? You should never give up. I mean, age shouldn't be the the really determining factor of saying, well, gee, I'm going to work for 10 years and then I'm going to make enough money. I'm going to retire. I don't think I'll ever retire, you know? Yeah. You know, I've heard that someone said retirement is working for who you want, when you want. That is true. Or actually the other piece to it is retirement is working with who you want when you want. I don't know if I just repeated the same well, thing. Well, I mean, retirement for me, it's a financial freedom. Sure. Okay? So, I mean, I've had financial freedom for the last, maybe I've had financial freedom <laughs> anyhow. I mean, since I stepped out of Iraq, I had my freedom. And then I had my financial freedom maybe 25 years ago. I mean, I could do anything, right? I haven't worked for, at the same time, I've created a similar environment in my business. I give a lot of autonomy, but at the same time, with accountability to my people. So it's a different culture. Even the culture within the business is different. And people are very inspired with this. 
I mean, I've got the employee who've stayed with us eight years, nine years, 10 years. It's not like, you know, we get employee, they either they survive or they, they just basically leave the company. Pretty much that's where, where our culture. And, and I, I honestly, we have the best of the best because we hire the best people and we don't care whether they are in Silicon Valley or they are in Ukraine, in Kyiv or they are in Finland. And we have people all over. You mentioned that Ukraine programmers are some of your best programmers. They are. They are great programmers. We have great programmers in Ukraine, Norway, Italy, Finland, Netherlands, and the U.S. So wonderful. So, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, if you could name for me who are two or three people that totally inspired you. Two or three people, you mean at the? Like you mentioned, your dad. Your dad obviously had a. My dad inspired impact. me a lot, actually. And I, I think I would say also my brother. My brother, he was, uh, he was a teacher, a physics and math. He inspired me, and definitely I would say in the U.S. Obviously, Steve Jobs inspired me a lot. Uh, are you the Steve Jobs of Assyria? No, uh, I, I don't think, think you so. are. I don't I think, think you so. Are. <laughs> so Steve Jobs, it's uh, it's an amazing. I mean, there are some a lot of his characteristics I, I like in terms of his visions, and he does dare to do things that's not being done by other people, you know, which, which I really like and I admire about him. But also I, ha I admire his, his outlook about life and how he, I mean, he didn't live as many years. I wish he was still alive, right? I mean, he could have done amazing things in this, on this earth, right? So, um, so, so I, think, I think from that perspective, yeah, my family, my dad and my brother has been pretty much, uh, you know, Always my brother, he encouraged me to, you know, to, to study and, and basically he was uh, the person uh, not as much, very much into religion because he studied physics and so he was much more thinking outside the box. But then yet my dad, he was very, uh, a person of faith and religion and so, so there was that balance, you know. Yeah, I think that sometimes religion, it, it creates uh, barriers for people to think outside the box. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it sort of uh, holds people within this system or way of viewing the world that prevents them from seeing, you know, all the options. So then when an atheist comes around, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. This person, you know, they, they, they see things that religious people would never see because their whole system blocks them from even entertaining these ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's what my, my dad used to tell my brother, though. What are you teaching you, you, your brother, <laughs> you know? You know, you, you start having all these discussions about God and things like that because pretty much my brother, he was not really into religion mm -hmm. at all, you know? Very interesting. So, if you could say one thing to all the Assyrians all over the world who listen to the Assyrian podcast, what would you say to them? Well, I would say... Follow your dream, basically, and be very persistent and uh, be uh, consistent and don't give up. I mean, uh, you have a dream and you want to follow that, just, uh, just do it. And don't let other people tell you what's good for you. I mean, whatever, whatever is good for you, you have to follow those dreams and, 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 and have the passion. But the passion 
is 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 very important. But the but the other things don't don't be afraid to to fail, and and don't be afraid to really admit you, your mistakes, but follow. Be humbled, and basically take advice. Bring the best of the best around you. It's not about basically you think you have the best idea. Maybe the best idea is next to you. So I would say if you have 10 friends, take those 10 friends and say, okay, each one of them might have some negative aspect, but what are the most two positive, three positive things I can take from each friends and I can incorporate it into my lifestyle. You would be basically the best person. I like that. I like that. And I think for our Syrian listeners and just people who listen to this, making sure you have those friends in your life that will tell you the truth and they will challenge you. And they will, like you said, you might not have the best idea. The person next to you might have the best idea. Or sometimes it's the person you don't even like who actually has the best idea. But you're saying be open to that, listen to that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That doesn't mean if a person has some negative aspects that everything is negative about them, right? But listen to some other things. Maybe they might have some positive things to tell them, right? I mean, I mean, as an example, when I was starting my business, honestly, I went to a person that he didn't know anything about technology, but I have valued his view. And I said, what do you think about this business model? And he would like criticize. No, I don't believe in this. I believe in this. And I would listen. Or I would go to my daughter, or I would go to my brother, or somebody next to me and ask, what do you think about this? Just, just you know, a simple person, right? <laughs> next to you. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing your wisdom. Well, thank you. Thanks thank for you. being on the show. Well, thank you. And, Appreciate uh, it. We'll reconnect with you in a few years and Definitely. hear what the latest and greatest is. Well, let's see. <laughs> Great. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast. Share it on your social media and tell your friends. And please don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store. It really does help. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.